God, we love you, we praise you, we glorify you today in the mighty name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your word, we thank you that it's alive and that it's active and that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we pray today that you'd use this word to change us, challenge us, and to convict us. Fathers, we've come here today, we need to hear from you. Father, we need to hear your voice. And so God, would you please use this word that is infallible in me, who is very infallible, or very fallible, to speak to your people, God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3. For those of you that are just joining us for the first time, this is what we do here, man. We just go through the Bible. Uh, it's line by line somewhat. Um, we've got to get through it because if we did line by line in 2 Samuel 3, we'd probably be in 2 Samuel 3 for the next few uh, months, but I'm not that patient. So... It's going to be a little bit different this morning in that usually I'll read you the whole entire portion of scripture and then we'll come back around. I'll explain it to you. But this is a, this is a different portion of scripture. Um, I, I didn't, I, I struggled with it a little bit this week just because it, it doesn't really make sense as you read it through the first time if you know the, the understanding of the whole entire story. Um, again, if you're just joining us for the, for the first time, uh, the, the major players in this part of the story are King Saul, who used to be king of Israel, King David, who's now the king of Israel. There's been a split in the kingdom where this king Ishbosheth takes over uh, and takes Israel, and then David becomes king over Judah. David is the rightful king. Um, there's some few players, so we're going to walk through it. So uh, in Second Samuel chapter 3, starting verse 1, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's what I'm talking about where... Uh, the house of Saul is the house of Ishbosheth because Ishbosheth has taken over uh, the house of Saul because Abner made him king. And the house of Saul is going stronger, excuse me, weaker, and the house of David is growing uh, stronger. And so that's kind of the, the, the overarching part of this story. So sons of David, so uh, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by uh, the, all these people, names I can't pronounce. And he had a bunch of kids and a bunch of wives all the way down to verse 5. Uh, we're not really getting into that part. Part of the story is that David had a bunch of wives. He shouldn't have it. What the Bible describes is not what the Bible prescribes all the time, but the Bible is so honest that it's willing to even paint great leaders as flawed to say like David shouldn't have done this. A lot of his problems would be fixed if he would have just had one wife and stuck with her. Verse six. Uh, now it was so while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So now we start to get into the parts of this story which began to get interesting. Abner is the second in command to Ishbosheth. He's the head of the king's army. If you're the head of the king's army, you're the most, the second most powerful person to that tribe. And so uh, Abner is noticing what's happening and so he's actually strengthening his hand on the house of Saul because he wants to be the one in control not Ishbosheth. And it says, and Saul had a concubine, and I won't go into that because there's kids in the room, whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aias. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? So Abner goes and has a power play against Ishbosheth, because Ishbosheth is the king of Israel. As a power play, he decides to take one of his concubines and make it his own. Now, some people, uh, some scholars that went through this said that Ishbosheth uh, erroneously accused 
Abner of this, but as we walk through it, what you're going to see is that Abner's a, a, a conniving, despicable man, and it's abundantly clear that he did have his way uh, with uh, uh, this uh, gal Rizpah. It says, then Abner, excuse me, verse 7, and Saul, the concubine, his name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. So Ispasheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Gone in. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ispasheth and said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David and charge, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. Now, this is classic narcissistic behavior. As soon as he's a, as soon as he's accused of something, then he turns it into Ishbosheth and says, "Listen, man, look at how good I've been to you. Uh, David's the rightful king, and I haven't even turned you over to him." Uh, interesting enough, Abner knew that David was the rightful king and didn't act on it. But now he's uh, he's getting very angry with Ishbosheth, and so he says in verse nine, "May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel." and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Watch this, verse 11. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. This gives uh, gives you a, a glimpse into how this conversation was. Abner wasn't just like, hey, Ishbosheth, let's have a nice little conversation. The level of, the level of vitriol that he had as he's coming uh, to Ishbosheth is seen in the way Ishbosheth steps back and goes, man, I can't even challenge this guy. Look at how angry he is. Verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, say, whose is the land, saying, also, make your covenant with me, and indeed, all my hands shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Abner sends messages to David, and his message to David is, hey, I'm the guy, um, I can make this deal happen, where now I can take the nation of Israel, and they're going to come along to you as the king of Judah, and we'll be able to unify this whole entire thing. And David says, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come see my face. Now, D- David's heart is so great, he he still wants to honor the house of Saul. That's why he wants to have his daughter to be there. And it was his wife that was taken from him, and so now he wants to get his wife back. Uh, so, verse 14, so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself, for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband's Paltiel, the son of Laish. And then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. Kind of a sad part of the story we're not going to dig into. This poor guy thought he had a wife, and then his wife got taken from him. Verse 17, now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. There's the name of our sermon. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all the enemies. Abner goes and is talking to the elders of Israel and says, look, you know that David's supposed to be king, so why don't we all go move together and we'll go unify this kingdom together. And Abner almost, excuse me, Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David at Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Why does he make a feast with Abner? It's because it's customary. It's customary if your enemy comes, even if it's your enemy, let's have a feast and let's work this thing out. 
Uh, and because uh, David also shows his love for his enemies, that even an enemy he's going to treat well. Uh, verse 21, Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that, my, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and then he went in peace. I'm not done, but I'm getting to the next point. So Joab it now comes into the story. And for those of you that don't remember Joab, uh, Joab is... King David's second in command. And so because he's David's second in command, what happens is, um, hold on, I gotta turn on the air conditioning. It's roasting in here. Um, that's the power of the phone. Alright, here we go. All the cold people are like, it was just getting good in here. Um, uh, and so, uh, Joab's the second in command to David. And so Joab's been out raiding and now he comes back and finds that, that Ishbosheth's second, Abner, has now been making a deal with his boss. So Joab's no, no dummy. He's like, I see where this is going. This second in command is going to try to unify the kingdom and take my place where I'm second in command. Now, if you also remember, Abner's the one who killed Joab's brother, Asahel. Uh, Joab and his brother um, uh, Abishai uh, were there, and, and uh, Abner killed his brother Asahel. So Joab's got two bones to pick. He wants to make sure that he keeps his place uh, in, in the administration of King David, but he also also wants to avenge the death of his brother. Are you guys following me on this? Okay, because um, it took a while for me to figure it out. Verse 22. <laughs> Maybe I'm just the dumbest man in the room. All right, so at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with him. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone to peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he sent him away and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out, you're coming in, and to know that all that you're doing. So now Joab says to King David, you had a chance to kill him. You didn't kill him. Now you send him away. And it says, and, uh, when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David didn't know it. So when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to the gate to speak with him privately. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And so Joab calls a meeting with him. He's like, Hey man, let's talk. Just nice talk between friends. And then he kills him. Right now, th- th- this is what threw me for a loop. Abner is David's enemy. Okay. Uh, he's the, his enemy because he made Ishbosheth king. And so now we, we get to the interesting part of the story of like, why does, why does David treat him so nicely though? Cause if he's his enemy, he shouldn't treat him so nicely. So verse 20 afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house and let there never fail to be a house uh, in the house of Joab. One who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on his staff or falls by the sword and who lacks bread. Now, it's very interesting that Joab is David's second in command and Joab kills Abner. But then right after Abner dies, who's seemingly David's enemy, David says, I don't want nothing to do with this, man. Like he completely distances himself from Joab and says, if you have any problems with it, take it up with Joab because he's the one that did this. Now you wonder, well, why was it this way? The kingdom's divided. Israel, Judah. David has everything to gain from Abner dying. But if he gets excited about Abner dying, then all of a sudden the nation of Israel won't come along with David because then they see David as his enemy. So it's 
governmentally advantageous for David to actually make it seem like he cares about Abner uh, so that everybody that was with Abner was with Ishbosheth will then come along and follow David. If he would have said, oh man, I'm so glad Abner's dead. They're like, well, now we're going to fight you. So it's just politically expedient for David to make it seem like he's actually on board with with Abner not dying and make Joab into be the bad guy. Verse 30, so Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Asahel, giving in the battle. Verse 31, David said to Joab with all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And the king followed the coffin. One of the greatest uh, honors that someone could have is that a king followed the coffin to the grave. And so David as the king is actually showing great honor upon Abner. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a, uh, a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before the wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God, do so to me, and more so also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them since wherever the king, whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that David uh, that day, that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. That's where we say again, right? We want to make sure that David says to the people, because it's politically expedient, it was not my intent to kill Abner. Let that rest on Joab. Uh, then the king said to his servants, do not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel. And I'm weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. <sighs> All right. So that's the intro. Um, now <laughs> preaching one one is that it's, it's one thing to tell you what the story says, It's another thing to tell you what it means, but it's a whole other thing to look at this story of like power plays and, and, and death and foreskins and then say like, okay, so how do, how does this apply to my life? Right. They're sleeping with concubines and there's murder. I mean, again, people are like the, the Bible's a boring book. Dude, this is a page turner. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, this is good theater, man. This is, they should make a movie about this one. Now, there's three main people we're going to talk about in the sermon today. We're going to talk about Abner, we're going to talk about Joab, and we're going to talk about the, the elders of Israel. And and the verse that's going to be the backdrop from us is, is verse uh, 3, 17, and 18. It says, Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. Now do it. Now do it. And this is a, a, a command that Abner gives to the nation of Israel when he says, you know that David is supposed to be your king. Now then do it. Make David your king. Now, I want to turn those words back to Abner and say, do you know what, Abner? You know what you were supposed to be doing. Now then you should have done it. You should have done it. Uh, Abner was completely self-seeking in this story. Uh, he goes and he sleeps with Rizpah. He goes and he, he makes her uh, his. And this is a power move on Ishbosheth. Think about it. Abner's the one that made Ishbosheth king. And then he goes and he sleeps with a concubine to go and have a power move. Because why? Remember, the house of Saul is de- decreasing. The house of David is increasing. 
Ishbosheth is second in command, realizes and says, you know what, this is my only opportunity to make a move, so now I'm going to make this move. He had a limited time to act to secure his place within the new administration. And he, and he goes so hard that Ishbosheth is actually afraid of him. Again, classic narcissistic behavior. It's meant to push Ishbosheth to a, a point of destruction. Make him into the perpetrator and not Abner. Now, from 10,000 feet, if you read this really fast before, it almost seems, if you didn't slow down, that Abner has a change of heart, right? Because he goes to David and is like, oh, David, you're supposed to be king. Let me, let me help you be king. Let me, let me be there for you. And oh, I'm going to broker this deal for you. And, and I'm going to help you. Mind you, I have everything to benefit from it. And so this is why I'm manipulating the situation so that it will benefit me. Think about it. He says to David, David, make a covenant with me. How, how is Abner the one that's in control? How, how is Abner the one that's in a position to say, oh, David, I know it was prophesied and God said that he was going to make you king, but you make a covenant with me and I will make you king. In the same way that I made Ishbosheth king, I'm the power broker here. I've got the ability to make kings. God doesn't make kings. I make kings. I made Ishbosheth king and I'm now destroying his house. And so now come along with me and I will make you king as well. I will bring Israel along with me. I've already got, I've been talking to the elders. I've been letting them know what's going on. So just make a deal with me and then, and then I'll bring them along to submit to you. What he should have done is repented and helped David with no thought of return. The Bible says in Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Abner had the power somewhat and he should have just used the power and said, you know what? I don't even care about myself. All I care about is that my nation should be unified. All I care about is that the rightful king is the rightful king. And so now, David, I'm just going to submit to you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to do everything that I can to make uh, to make you into king. But no, Abner goes to the elders and says, you know what, man, you guys should have met David King a long time ago. That's what he says. He says, you know you should have done this. Now then do it. Make David your king. Submit to his leadership. I'm not going to do it. But I sure hope that you will. Because if you do it, then I have a lot to gain from it. Because I can be the second in command. Because the king that I made is now failing. And now I need to continue to have the power that I want in my life. Take your own advice, Abner. You make David king. Quit with your negotiations and self-seeking behavior. Quit vying for influence and position and submit to the leadership of David. Submit. Submit to his leadership. He's the rightful king. It's no different. Like, human nature is, is the same thousands of years ago as it is today. You can even read in the New Testament how, how when Jesus was establishing the kingdom, he t- Jesus talked about kingdom more than anything else. And so the people around him, if you look throughout the New Testament, they asked Jesus these questions. said, hey, Jesus, we're really excited about this kingdom. Who's going to get good places when we get to the kingdom? Who, who of us is going to be in charge? What, what, what do we get? Because we're, we're willing to be a part of your kingdom. As long as we get some influence, as long as we get some power. Posturing, scheming, conniving. It's not what God intends for his people. See, in in the Old Testament, and this is why people that say you should unhitch your faith from the Old Testament are wonkers. The the, the Old Testament is just as much Jesus as the New Testament. King David is a Christ figure. 
Jesus is the son of David. And, and he reigns and, and sits on the throne as Messiah, as king. If you don't understand kingship of David, you can't understand kingship of Jesus. If you don't understand how, how a king had rightful rule over everything over his subjects' lives, you don't understand rightful rule of Jesus over everybody's lives as well. Amen. Abner refuses to submit. Why? Because he's got self-seeking in his heart. He wants what he wants for himself. What does it mean to you? Friend, you cannot live for Jesus and yourself at the same time. It's impossible. This is a constant theme in preaching. People say, man, it seems like all you talk about is death to self. Because it's a constant theme in scripture. Read the whole entire Bible. And there's stories beyond stories in the Old Testament about how the people of Israel refused to submit to the lordship of Yahweh. And how they did not do well because of it. Self-seeking behavior. Self-aggrandizing behavior, Baal worship, idol worship, it's all self-seeking. See, people think sometimes that idol worship is is somehow an, an offense to God because God is so weak that he can't stand anybody else to, to be worshipped. It's it's not as though God is sitting there going, oh, please, don't worship that guy, I want the worship. He's not that kind of guy. The, the, the problem with idol worship is that people create gods unto themselves so that they can tell that God what to do and how they want it to be. And this is the story of idol worship from thousands of years ago today. And people still turn Jesus into an idol when they form him into being something that he's not and make him do what they want him to do instead of Jesus being who they want to be and submitting to his lordship. That's why idol worship is so disgusting. People create gods into themselves. They tell that God what to do and how to be. And and and, and uh, it's easy to submit to something that, that you've created yourself. Idol worship. See, people, people will set limits to their relationship with God. People say things like, well, God, I will serve you until this. As long as you don't require this of me, as long as you don't change this about me, as, as long as you don't take this thing away from me or, 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 or say I can't commit this sin anymore, then I'll serve you. I'll give you my whole entire life, but only up to this point. Because if you peel back the onion of my heart, it's really about me. Death to self is the key. Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is not what Abner is doing. He was not esteeming David. He was esteeming himself. It's, it's the modern day equivalent of, of us being nice to someone for what they can do for us, not because it's the right thing to do. Jesus even said, don't even sinners do this. Don't, don't sinners, aren't sinners nice to people that can do something for them? And Jesus said, you know what, that's not what I intend for you, my children. Not what I intend for you at all. How you treat people that can do nothing for you says a lot about your character. People that can give you nothing. I mean, people, I mean, if you want to get friends, get a boat. Honestly, right? You get a boat and all of a sudden everyone wants to be your friend. They'll meet you at the dock and they, they might not even chip in on gas and uh, dock fees, but you'll have some friends if you got a boat. That's how it works. Yeah. You ain't got no boat. You ain't got no friends. That's just how it is. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us 
Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Folks, this is the crux of Christianity. Once you have died to yourself, you have no right to yourself any longer. All of your hopes, your dreams, your desires, everything that you want out of this life is dead. Dead to Jesus for what He wants from your life. You know, in 1 Peter 4, uh, 1 through 5, I want to show you this verse. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough in our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. when We walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to the spirit. See, the, the, when, when you're not following Jesus, you live a certain way. But when you live for Jesus, you have to live a total and completely different way. You're, you're no longer allowed to pour yourself over into things uh, that, that you desire in your own heart. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it talks about how there are people that use godliness as a means of gain. And, and, and that the, the Bible says to withdraw yourself from those people. And there, there literally are people that act like Christians just because they want what Christianity provides. They want the friends and they want the business contacts and they, they want the influence. All they see is godliness as a means of gain, as, as opposed to seeing righteousness in itself as, a, as the end of who we are in Christ. If, if you really would read your Bibles and you'd see the, the, the level of, of submission that God requires of us. Romans 12.10, in honor giving preference to one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. We as Christians should be the least selfish people in the room. And how, how do you break selfishness? You make it about other people. You give people your time. You give people your thoughts. You give, you give them what you have. You serve other people in love. Amen. Second point. Now then do it. Quit, 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 trist, quit, the twang, quit, quit twisting the truth. Why do I, why do I title the second part that? It's because Joab, as we'll see in just a moment, is twisting the truth for his own gain. He, he's, he's actually just as selfish as Abner, but he's using, uh, the cultural means of the day to get the ends of what he wants. See, here, here's the problem with human nature is that people want scripture to serve them. And so I ask you, when you read your Bible, are you just looking for nuggets to give you what you want? Are you looking for ways to gather your own uh, uh, things that you want in your life and justify the way that you live your life? Or you, are you reading it as a manual that says, you know what, God, it's clear that I'm wrong, you're right, direct me in how I should think, how I should speak, how I should act, what my sh- d- d- desires should be. 
Because here, here's again what's happening with Joab is that he's trying to position himself for the future. Remember, he's the second in command to David. Abner's the second in command to Ishbosheth. He's away. Abner comes to make a deal with David. And Joab's like, oh my gosh, man, this is the end of me. I, I, I got to do something here. So what does he do? He, he, he goes and tries to uh, position himself by killing Abner. Now, before he does that, which is very interesting part of this story, is that he completely destroys David's leadership and disrespects him as king. David is the rightful king in this situation. Now, why David chose to not completely kill Joab at this point, I don't understand. Uh, the, the only thing I can get is because David's king, he doesn't have to assert his position as king because he knows he's king. So he doesn't have to prove that he's king. He's like, say whatever you want. I'm still going to go home and be a king. So it doesn't matter. So verse uh, 24 says, then Joab came to the king and says, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is that you sent him away when he was already gone? Now, he also says to him, he says, and I don't want to get into it too deeply, but pay very close attention, okay? Because there's all ages in the room. When Joab goes to talk to David, he says, Abner came to you, came into you. And it's the, in the original Hebrew, it's actually the same verbiage that they used about when the, the writer of Samuel says, when, uh, Abner went into, uh, Saul's concubine is the same words that he's using with King David to say how, uh, Abner treated King David. Wow. He's saying, do you know what, David, you were just made into a woman. That's literally what he's saying. I mean, the, 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 people think that male put downs are an invention of this century. Like this, this is the male put down at its core of just like, dude, you were just made into a woman. Like that's, if you, you guys picking up what I'm dropping, do I need to explain it any further? Okay. It was like, no, no. Okay. This is again, this is that part where people say the Bible's boring. It's like, this is not like, this is great, great stories. So what does, what does Joab do? He kills Abner in the same way his brother Asahel was killed. He stabs him. He stabs him. He kills him in the same way. And this is, this is where the, uh, the part of his, uh, uh, twisting of the truth begins to come alive. Is he does it at the city gate. Why does he do it at the city gate? The city gate was the place of justice. It was the place where if, if something was going to happen to somebody, they would do it at the city gate because it had to be public. And so what, what Joab does is he calls this meeting for Asahel and because it was the custom and then he kills him at the city gate. What he's saying is, is that I know I shouldn't have killed, uh, uh, Abner, but look at what I've done. I've done it at the city gate where that's where justice happened. So this is justice upon Abner for the way in which he treated David. Does this make sense? It's twisting. It's it's twisting of the truth. See, Abner had killed Asahel in battle. The Bible says it's okay to kill people in in battle. But this, what he did, it's flat out murder. It was premeditated murder. And, And so he premeditates and murders Abner to avenge Asahel and to be able to get his own position in the kingdom. He mixes local tradition at the gate to justify murder and going against God's word. It's much like today's laws that support sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol, pornography, and such Christians use that as justification of why they're acceptable. They'll say things like, well, the law says it's okay. So if the law says it's okay, then it must be okay. 
But but it's not okay because it goes against what God's word says. We as Christians can't look at the laws of the land and say, well, you know, it was lawful. So I have every right to be able to do it. What does it mean to you? What unscriptural, godless things are you doing and allowing in your life based on the twisting of the truth? What sins do you commit that you justify with the laws of the land and scripture? Joab justified murder to reach his own conclusions and his own gain so that he could become second in command. See, Jesus spoke against hypocrisy in Matthew 23. He said, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe. Jesus told his disciples and said, whatever the uh, uh, scribes and the Pharisees say, observe what they say, because they're saying the right things, but they're doing the wrong things. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is knowing the truth that you're supposed to do, even speaking the truth that's right, and then choosing to live totally and completely opposite of it. Folks, the necessity for us to live in this world while not taking on the look and beliefs of the world is a real challenge. And we as Christians are called to be different. There's things that the the world says are lawful that we cannot take part in because we're children of the living God. And it's hard to to stand before the world and say, I'm not going to take part in that because it goes against what my God teaches me. It may be lawful in your books. It may be lawful in your law. But just because a bunch of people got together and made a law, as I use that word loosely, does not make it God's law. Side note, that's why Christians need to vote their Bibles, because it makes it harder for me to preach the truth and tell someone they're in the wrong when the laws go against the laws of God, because then they will say to me, well, the law says it's okay when it's wrong. It's against God's word. Second Peter 3.16, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in these in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. It's funny how much sinners and non-believers know two or three scriptures that they can twist. Like, well, you know, it says, do not judge. No, it's not what it says. It says, I'm going to judge you with right judgment. That's what it says. They profess to know God, but in their works, they deny him being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Third point. Now then do it. David goes to the elders of Israel, and and what's interesting as part of this story is that David uh, is the rightful king. Abner knows he's the rightful king, and even says to the elders, you know David was supposed to be your king. Now do it. Make him your king. Make him their, your, your ultimate ruler. Now, uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. The, the, the fact that Abner doesn't uh, have the right motives doesn't mean that what he's saying is not true. Sometimes people dismiss truth because of the, the, the person that's delivering it when the reality is, is that even a broken, selfish person can still deliver biblical truth. The truth is, is that the elders of Israel should make David their king. It's interesting that Abner knew the truth for the Lord has spoken of David saying by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and of the hand of all of his enemies. He knows the prophecies. He knows the truth. Abner knew it all along, but Ish, but he made Ishbosheth king and refused to submit to David's kingship. I love uh, Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether it be God or somebody else. 
Folks, this story, this Bible is all about kingship. It's about who's going to be your ruler. Who's going to be the one that's going to lead your lives. Abner knew it all along. This, this story fills within a bulk of Old Testament stories that are all about submission. Read your Bibles, folks. Read through the Old Testament. There's this constant cycle of Israel submitting to God and not submitting to God. And how when they are submitted to God, they prosper. And when they don't submit to God, they're destroyed. And how God is just saying to them, please, would you just fully submit? And again, King David is a Christ figure saying to these people, if you will not submit to King David, you will not submit to Messiah. Christ comes and says, I sit on the throne of David. I'm the son of David and the son of man. Will you submit to me as your ultimate king? Jesus talked about kingdom more than anything else. People say he talked about money. It's not true. He talked about kingdom more than anything else. And he is the ruler of the kingdom. He's the ultimate authority in the kingdom. Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. This is Israel, and this is us. What does it mean to you? Are you fighting the king? Because this is the part where sometimes people hear sermons over and over, like, oh man, this guy sounds like a broken record. The Bible's a broken record. Because the cycle's the same. It's people that think they're submitted when they're not. It's people that think they're following God when they're not. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word from thousands of years ago and says, look at these knuckleheads. Look at these guys that thought they were in the right. Look at these guys that thought they were living the right way and were fully submitted to the king. They were serving themselves. Are we resisting Christ's kingship in our lives? Is Is there areas of our lives where we do not allow him to rule? Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. See, submission is not doing what you want. Submission is doing what you don't want. Stiff-necked, it's it's an agricultural thing for an animal that his neck is stiff and he won't turn from the left and to the right. And it's good when you're following God to, to keep forward, but it's bad when God is the one that's holding the reins. It's like, here, son, daughter, I'm trying to pull you a different direction. And we're so self-seeking and we're, we're so self-focused uh, uh, that we won't allow him to change the direction of our lives. Let that not be said of us. Stiff-necked is unable to turn to the will of God in our lives. I ask you this, who has fought God in the Bible and won? <laughs> who? Now, now, now it may seem as though like, well, I'm in control and I'm, I'm doing these things in my life. But, but the end result, friend, will not be that you win. It, it just, it doesn't. The only, you win by losing. You lose to Christ. You submit to Christ. You give him everything in your life. You give him control. See, the level of control and submission that Jesus demands of us is far more than people realize. People like easy Christianity, man. Doesn't require much, doesn't demand much. It gives me more than than I have to give. People are excited about serving a God like that. The reality, though, when you get your face in the Word, is you realize that Christ demands complete rule over every part of our lives. He doesn't just want your time and your actions. He wants your thoughts and your desires. He wants your desires to be for him. He wants your thoughts to be for him. And so when they're not, God says, you know what? Come under subjection. Let me be your king. Submit to my rulership. John 5, 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. 
Here, here's my last scripture, and then we'll get out of here. First Peter chapter two. I want to read you this. Are you guys quiet, or am I am I just loud today? Is it good? You guys drinking it in? It's good, man. I'm looking at you guys, and you guys are like, please make it stop. All right, so it's fine. So here's the last scripture. First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of the evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's interesting that the Bible demands of us as Christian people to be fully submitted to government. And, and this Christian idea of anti-government is anti-God. God, there's no authority except that which is instituted of God. Now, there will be a day and time when we've got to go against government, and I don't believe there's parts of it today, but for the most part, we're supposed to submit to the laws of the land. We're supposed to. The Bible declares, like, show an unbelieving world what submission looks like by submitting to the laws of the land. That's what it says. How much more so does God demand our submission to him if he's making us submit to ungodly rulers? Yeah. You, you think he says, submit to the laws of the land, submit to the rulers of this world, and then says to you in Christ, but you don't have to submit to Christ. Just kind of do whatever you want, man. Like, it's about you anyway. So just live how you want to live and say what you want to say and want what you want to want. I, I, I contend that the answer is no. If he demands that level of submission to earthly governments, how much more so does he demand our submission to his eternal government, into his kingdom, into his way of living? Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian and you'd like to become one, it's really quite easy. All you have to do is say, I'm done living for myself. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to live for Jesus. If you've never made that decision before and you'd like to do that for the very first time today, we want to pray with you. We want today to be a marker in your life where you said, this was the day that I became a, I became a Christ follower. And if you've never made that decision before and you'd like to do it for the very first time, I want you to raise your hand right now and say, that's me. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Is there anybody that needs to do that for the first time? Or maybe you know Jesus. You've been, you've been knowing it since you were a kid. But you've been far from God. You've lost your way and you're like, man, pastor, I, I know I'm supposed to be serving Jesus, but I'm just not. And I've been waiting for a time to come back to him, a time when I could give my life to him and say, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to be your son or daughter once again. You think you're far from God, but he's right behind you. He's been chasing after you. Just turn around and fall into his arms. He loved you while you were his enemy. How much more so now that he calls you son or daughter? Come back to him. If you need to come back to Jesus today, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you as well. Thank you, Jesus. I see that hand. I'd invite you if you want to come up and pray with somebody, someone will pray with you about that decision. I know it feels weird, but 
It's always good to have a moment to say this was the day that I did that. Thank you, Lord. I don't know what the Lord spoke to you in this message. Hey, I'm right out in front, man. There's areas in my heart that I know that need to come under the rulership of Jesus. I'm working on it. Getting there. So if there's a part of your heart that needs to be submitted, just just talk to Jesus about it. Say, Lord, help me in this area. Change this desire. Change this thought. Change this action. Father, we submit to your Lordship today, God. You as the ultimate King, Lord. We give you our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.